as we continue in worship, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 will be in verses 15 through 28. I am filling in for Pastor Dwayne this morning. He is currently, he and Ms. Kay are currently visiting their first grandson, little Abel, this morning. If you're keeping track at home, that is grandbaby number three already this year. Shout out to Shiloh and Ellis. I saw come in. There, there we go. Uh, so excited that they get time with family this weekend. And my name is Kenneth Brock. I have the joy of serving as the student ministry director here at Open Door. And as always, it's, it's such a treat and an honor to, to open God's word with you and continue this series in the book of Hebrews. J.R.R. Tolkien was a big fan of fairy tales and stories. Now, you might know this if you know who he is. He, of course, very famously wrote which series? Yeah, one more time louder. All right, I'm glad we got some cultured people in here. Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, right? Tolkien also wrote an essay in which he described the power of fairy tales and the power of a story. He, he talked about the joy that you and I feel when we read a story or when we watch it happen on the big screen. He, he talked about the kind of joy where, where someone escapes death or when good triumphs over evil. And, and Tolkien argues in this essay that the reason you and I resonate with these stories of joy, the reason that you and I want a happy ending, the reason that you and I uh, like it when somebody escapes from death, is that each of these stories and each of these tales points to the true story of the whole world, the story of the gospel. And again, Tolkien writes that this, was, this is the underlying reality of the whole world. And so when you and I experience joy in these stories, the reason that we resonate with us is because it contains shadows of the gospel. It points us to the gospel story. Let me see if I can give you just a few examples as we start. There's a young man, when he was, he was younger, he, he lost both of his parents to a car crash. He ended up taking over his dad's company. His dad specialized in, in technology and later in weapons. And this young man built this company into a billion dollar industry. He would have contracts with armies all over the world and he ended up going with the US Army overseas one time on, on one of these expeditions. Well, as he was on this expedition, the, the caravan that he was in actually was blown up with, uh, by the enemy with a weapon that he had actually sold. Piece of shrapnel got very close to his heart and the doctor that operated on him had to put a device in his chest to like a magnet, like draw this shrapnel out. Now this, of course, is the story of Tony Stark, right? He ends up building a suit of armor around this thing that was put in his chest. And at the end of this movie that was released in 2008, he uh, would declare to the world these words. He said, I am Iron Man. And these words kicked off an industry, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And over the next 10 years, Marvel became the highest grossing film franchise of all time. Over $20 billion, that's billion with a B. That is more money than over 70 countries in this world currently own, over $20 billion. And I find it fascinating to think about how they chose to end this saga, end this storyline, they released two movies, 2018, 2019, which somebody told me early in the first service that I ruined the movie for them by telling them, look, my rule is if it's been out for over a year, that's on you. You had a chance to see it, especially with all these streaming services and everything. In 2018, there's a movie release. Again, you've got this whole saga, this whole storyline. Iron Man is a central character. Infinity War comes out 2018. Thanos, who's been the bad guy, kind of behind the scenes this whole time, he comes on the scene here. He collects what's called six infinity stones and he has an infinity gauntlet. 
And at the end of this movie, he snaps, killing half of all life in the universe, turning them to dust. And so Endgame, that was released the following year in 2019, which at the time was the highest grossing movie of all time, over $3 billion just by itself, it picks up exactly where Infinity War left off. And it tells a story about this band of heroes that was left, again, half of all life has been destroyed, and they, they come up with this plan, and they call it a time heist. So they gather, they gather their resources, and they go back in time to get these stones from before Thanos took them in order to, to bring everybody back, and it sounds like a really good plan. Well, if you've watched these movies, it doesn't exactly go according to plan. And at the end, there's this big epic battle. Some of you might know it even if you haven't seen the movie because there's all kinds of memes about it all over social media. So everybody comes back, there's this big battle, but it comes down to two people. It comes down to Iron Man, again, this central character in the whole storyline, and Thanos, the bad guy. And Thanos actually knocks Iron Man down to the ground, and Thanos stands up again, once again, with the six infinity stones in his hand, and he says the words, I am inevitable, and he snaps. But this time, nothing happens. It's because during this battle, as Iron Man was knocked down, he managed to grab the stones off of Thanos' gauntlet. Iron Man sits up with the six infinity stones in his hand, and he says the words that ended his first movie. I am Iron Man, and he snaps, and the enemy is defeated. Thanos and his armies just vanish into dust. And I find it fascinating to think about this story. Again, a a billion-dollar industry, why did they choose to end the story in this way? Obviously, people are willing to pay to see this, and obviously they were paying to see this on the big screen. But why did they choose to end it in this way? Marvel, of course, is not the only movie franchise to do this. Second highest grossing movie franchise of all time, Star Wars. One of the most famous scenes in Star Wars is when Darth Vader sacrifices himself for his son, Luke. Third highest grossing movie franchise of all time, Harry Potter. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, what does Harry do? He realizes that he is one of the Horcruxes keeping Voldemort alive, and so he sacrifices himself. Now, as an aside, yes, Harry Potter does come back to life, which is a totally different sermon illustration there, but just stay with me here, stay with me. This theme of sacrifice is in a lot of the movies and entertainment that we watch. Spock in Star Trek, for you older ones out there. Uh, Boromir in Lord of the Rings, right? Sacrifices himself. You've got all these stories of sacrifice, why? It's because these writers and directors of these movies know that it resonates with us. They know it resonates with us because we're willing to take out our wallets and to pay to go see these in theaters, right? Spend it on popcorn, movie, a drink, just, just to watch this movie. Why is that? Well, Tolkien argues in his essay that the reason we resonate with these stories is because it points to a greater reality. The reason that we find joy in these stories, uh, finding uh, life after death, or someone even sacrificing themselves so that other people can live is because it points us to the gospel. It points us to a true hero who has entered into death once and for all so that all people might find life through him. And the reason we we resonate with these stories is because this story is also our story. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to die in our place and that if we place our faith and trust in him, we can find life. 
So, so I, I take a, a longer time this morning to give you this introduction and give you these stories because as we approach Hebrews chapter nine, it's really easy to get lost in this idea of, of altars and blood, of, of cows and of goats that we find here in this chapter of Hebrews. After all, most of you who are here this morning did not come and park your car and tie up your, your pet goat or your pet calf to sacrifice when we get to end today. Most of you did not do that. And so you read a passage like this and you think to yourself, what does this have to do with me? I don't, I don't do any of this. But friends, what I want you to see is that this is your story. This is my story. This is the true story of the whole world. How we are saved through sacrifice. We see this in entertainment all the time. So the question I have for you is very provocative this morning. Has your God bled? Has your God bled? Does your view of God, your theology of God, if you will, does it have room for a God who sacrifices himself? Many of you in here would call yourself a Christian, but for some of you, even though you might say, yes, I believe that God has bled for me, he has died for me in the person of Jesus Christ, you don't actually believe this all the time. Because when things are going on in our world, like wars and rumors of wars and battles and, and refugees who are displaced from their families, or when things are going on in your marriage, the, the fighting and the bickering, and it seems like your marriage is on the rocks, or students, when you go and, and, and feel like you're facing all this uh, attack from the world in your schools, you begin to ask yourself qu these questions. Why would God allow this to happen? Does he not care? Does he not understand? But the truth of the Bible is this, that God has bled for you. And because he has come to this earth as a person in Jesus Christ, he identifies with you, he understands you. He knows your pain, he knows your suffering, and he does so because he gave himself in your place. And if you believe the story of the Bible, then you believe in a God who has bled for you. You believe in a God who has sacrificed himself for you. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I ask you this question too, has your God bled? Because maybe you adhere to a different religion or maybe even no religion at all. And instead of a religion where you pursue good works and you hope that it will be good enough one day in the end, the Bible teaches that Christ has died in our place and that we can have hope and assurance right now, right here in this moment. We, we do not have to wait to the end of our lives when we die and, and hope that at that point we have done enough good in our life to outweigh the bad. This is the good news of the gospel, that you can have hope and assurance right now. And this is who, Paul, that, who the author is writing to here in the book of Hebrews. He is writing to a people and telling them that they have a better covenant. There, there is a better way. They don't have to go back to the old covenant of works, sacrificing animals once a year. No, there's a sacrifice who has come once and for all, and his name is Christ Jesus. Here's the main idea I want you to take away this morning. Christ's shed blood purchases a new and better covenant for all who trust in and wait for him. Purchase. There's a transaction of blood that takes place here between the old covenant and the new covenant. I want you to keep in mind this idea of sacrifice because it's gonna undergird everything in this chapter. All the blood that you see, it is pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. So in this text, I wanna show you three purchases, three purchases that the blood of Christ makes on our behalf as believers. Purchase number one, the blood of Christ 
has purchased our inheritance. The blood of Christ has purchased our inheritance. Look with me, chapter nine of Hebrews, verse 15. It says, therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who were called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So if you were here last week, we talked about this idea of, of covenant. Pastor Doyen talked about Jesus Christ, our, our mediator, our great go-between, and talked about how the new covenant with Christ is, is better, it is greater. So verse 15 sum, uh, summarizes, and it kind of concludes this argument so far in chapter nine, but it also begins a new paragraph that will last until verse 28 that we'll get to in just a few moments. And so as the author begins this new paragraph, he is going to explain what he means by this idea of blood and this idea of, of Christ purchasing on our behalf. Notice in verse 15, it talks about this idea of eternal inheritance because a death has taken place, past tense. The author is gonna give an illustration in the next couple of verses. Read with me verse 16. It says, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the will who made it is living, while the one who made it is living. So here's what he's saying. You've got this illustration here of this will. The, the word used for will and for covenant, your, your version might say testament here in these verses, all is the same word in the original language. So the author is trying to describe the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant by giving an illustration of a will here. A will contains a couple of things. It contains your estate. Your estate is, is what you have, your possessions. But a will also talks about the beneficiaries. That means who is going to be blessed by what you have. Now, husbands, if you're married in here, you know that once you're married, nothing is your own anymore. Your wife owns everything, right? Wives, can I get an amen? So, so I have a will, I have a will that says everything that I own goes to my wife and to my daughter. So if something were to happen to me, they get everything I own. Now at this point in my life, it's not very much, it's a lot of books, some papers, some other things, right? But they, but they get that, they, they get everything that I own. But a will happens when someone dies. That's what the author says right here. The beneficiaries of the will don't get the estate until someone dies. This is what makes Luke chapter 15 so sad. Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. When the son comes to the father and he asks for the inheritance, he's essentially saying, Dad, I want what's coming to me. Give me what's mine. Dad, I wish you were dead. I only want the blessings that you can give me. Why? Because you only get the estate through a death. But for the Christian, notice what it says here. It says a, a death already has taken place. Whose death? It's Christ. Christ's death has already taken place past tense. So the argument being made here in this illustration that the author uses, listen, is that you and I get to experience as beneficiaries of this will, you and I get to experience the blessings right now because a death already has taken place past tense. It reminds me of a story in Numbers 13. God has, has given this land to his people as an inheritance, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he told them that, hey, once you go and you take this land and you take out the enemies, you will have rest on every side. You will have peace. And so, Numbers 13, 
Joshua, who is leading Israel, comes and he sends out 12 spies. And these spies go and they, they scout out the land and they come back and they say, hey, yes, there's milk and honey, there's a lot of other good things, but there's people in the land. There's giants in the land. And they make us look like grasshoppers. So uh, Joshua, yeah, we, we can't take this land. These people are too big, there's no way. But there's two guys, there's two guys. They come in and they say, no, no, no. The Lord has already given us this land. He has given it to us as an inheritance. Israel, though, did not take the land, and as a result, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Hebrews chapter four, for us in the New Covenant, connects this idea of rest to us. And what the Bible teaches that instead of rest being found in a certain parcel of land, or on a certain day of the week, rest for you and for me now comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that if you want to experience true rest, does not mean your life will be easy, but if you want to find rest, if you want to find peace, it only comes through Christ Jesus. And you can experience that now. Because some of you in here, some of you have, have said this even in the last couple of weeks. You say things like, mm, I'll, I'll rest when I'm dead. I'll rest uh, when I'm in heaven. Or, or, or my life circumstances right now, they're just preventing me from having rest, from having peace. But friends, listen, that's not what the Bible says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Christ has come to give us true rest. You, you can experience this eternal inheritance now. Why? Hebrews 9, because Christ has already died in your place. You experience this blessing, this inheritance now. Galatians 5, when, when Paul is talking about this idea of, of spiritual fruits, these things that you can experience through the Holy Spirit, he begins Galatians 5 by talking about Christ. He says it's for freedom. Christ has set you free. It is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then he begins by talking about the Spirit. He says elsewhere to the church at Ephesus, the Spirit is a down payment of your what? Of your inheritance. You, you get the Holy Spirit now as a believer and you experience the blessing. So in Galatians 5, when, when Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of this down payment, it is through the blood of Christ that you're able to experience the Spirit who gives you true love, who gives you true joy, who gives you true peace, who gives you true patience, who gives you true kindness. You should want these things. Don't you wanna have love? Don't you wanna have joy? Don't you wanna have peace in your life? Don't you need a little bit more patience? Or maybe you know somebody sitting beside you who needs a little bit more patience, right? We should want these things. We should desire these things. You can have these things right now because a death has taken place. It is the blood of Christ. And you experience this inheritance now. Yes, we look forward with anticipation to that final day when we will see our Savior face to face. But our inheritance does not start that day. No, the inheritance starts when just as we saw, we put our faith in Christ Jesus and we are raised from death to life. The blood on the cross guarantees your inheritance now. All the movie illustrations that I just shared with you all ago, they, they all share this as well. When a hero sacrifices themselves, the people around them all experience the blessing. They all experience the peace, right? All these people are saved through death, through sacrifice. We experience this inheritance now. So the author uses this illustration and then he connects it to the Old Covenant. Look with me, verse 18. 
He says, that is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats. And again, don't get lost in this language. It's again, the sacrifice along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop. And he, he sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. This is quoting from the passage of scripture that we just read a while ago for our public reading. It's the inauguration of the first covenant. Verse 18, it mentions blood. It, the word blood is mentioned at least seven times in these verses that we're gonna look at. And you might be saying, why is he preaching such a bloody passage? Well, number one, Dwayne assigned it to me, so take that for whatever you, whatever you want. But this idea of, of blood, it's throughout scripture. Now, when I was growing up, we would sing hymns in church with, with blood in it. Nothing but the blood. Are you washed in the blood? There's power in the blood. That's how we sing it in Georgia. There's power in the blood. And all these talking about the blood of Christ. And I remember growing up in church and just thinking to myself, man, I hope no visitors come in here this morning because this is going to be weird. They're going to think that we're actually taking blood baths. They're going to think we're cannibals. I don't know what they're going to think, right? Why, why blood? Why, why this mention of blood? Leviticus 17. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I, God, have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. A life for a life. Life is in the blood. Listen to me, friends. The use of blood here shows us that this sacrifice is costly. The sacrifice is costly. Each year, the high priest would, would come in and sacrifice these animals, but, but here, what the new covenant is saying is that Christ's blood has been shed for you, and that blood is costly. The cost of your sin is Christ on the cross, but you can experience the blessings of the new covenant now because Christ's death has past tense. It has taken place already, and you can experience the blessings of this covenant. You can experience the blessings of this will if you will place your faith and trust in him you can take assurance in the fact that you don't have to wait and to worry, hey, will my good works be enough? Because they cannot be enough. Only the blood of Christ can cover our sins. So number one, the blood of Christ purchases our inheritance. Number two, the blood of Christ has also purchased our forgiveness. The blood of Christ has purchased our forgiveness. Verse 22, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the Bible is teaching that forgiveness, which is a release or a pardon for our sin, it always costs something. It always costs blood. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, they are, the, God sacrifices an animal to cover them, to forgive them, to rid them of the guilt of their sin as he sends them out of the garden Three times here in this passage, you see the word purified or, or cleansed or purged here in verse 22 and also in verse 23. It has this idea of making free of guilt. The prophet Isaiah gives such a beautiful analogy for this. Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. 
I remember just a couple years ago when it snowed like three consecutive weekends and we ended up having a church service on Saturday night because it was gonna be so snowy on Sunday morning here. Catherine and I live in Wake Forest right beside a park and I remember us walking to this park one morning after it had snowed and we were the first ones there and the ground all around was just completely undisturbed. It was beautiful. There were no animals going around. There were no people walking around. And just as far as we could see, it was just covered white. More snow than I had ever seen growing up in Georgia. And it's just this beautiful landscape. And the Bible says that, that when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, this is now a picture of your life. Your sins, though they are scarlet, though they are crimson red, Isaiah says, you can be washed whiter than snow. There's a reason we sing about a winter wonderland every Christmas. It's a beautiful picture. And this can be the picture of your life when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Your sin no longer has to make you feel guilty. Your sin no longer has to make you feel dirty. Your sin no longer has to make you feel ashamed. You can be washed, washed as white as snow on a beautiful morning. Christ has offered himself to, to cleanse us. And the author continues, verse 23, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things, that is, in the Old Covenant, in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than this. Here it refers to the law of the Old Covenant as copies. Next week with Pastor Duane in chapter 10, you'll hear about this idea of the law as a shadow of what was to come. Here, Christ is, is the better sacrifice. He is the one who has given his life, but, but how? How does he do this? Verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, that is the tabernacle, which the text says only a model of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. But, verse 26, otherwise he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, this, this tent, this tabernacle that was built by humans, but the Bible says that's not what Christ does. Every year under the old covenant, you would have a high priest who would enter in once a year, once a year, once a year, again, after again, after again. But Christ has entered once and for all. One commentator says about this passage, he calls Christ's atoning sacrifice perpetually effective. There is no need to do it twice, three times, or more than that. Once and for all. This is what Christ has done for us to forgive us of our sins. Now you're thinking, what does this have to do with me? This idea of sacrifice, forgiveness, I, I get what you're saying. Christ has forgiven our sins. He's covered us, washed us white in the snow, all those things. How does this apply to my life? What's the connection between sacrifice and forgiveness? Ephesians 4, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Listen to me, friends. The basis for your forgiveness is the blood sacrifice of Jesus. The basis for your forgiveness is the blood sacrifice of Jesus. How has God forgiven us through Christ? It is through sacrifice. And this has profound implications for how you and I forgive each other in our own lives. 
for those of you in here who believe right now your marriage is just on the rocks and there is no hope, and you think about that other person, you say, hey, that other person, they, they really need to earn my forgiveness. They need to do something. No. The basis of your forgiveness is the blood of Christ. Students at school, when someone does something or says something about you and you, you think to yourself, man, I, I, they need to do something in order for me to apologize to them. No, the basis for your forgiveness is Christ and his blood. For those of you who are at work and you think about your coworkers and your boss, someone who has wronged you, and you think that the basis for your forgiveness is the merit of their apology. No, that's not true. The basis for your forgiveness is the blood of Jesus. We forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. Do any of these people deserve it? Do any of the, your, your spouse, your coworker, those, those people you're fighting with, do they deserve your forgiveness? No. But did you deserve forgiveness for your sins? No. The blood, the sacrifice of Jesus is the basis for our forgiveness. We forgive sacrificially because that's how we have been forgiven. Number one, the blood of Christ purchases our inheritance. Number two, the blood of Christ purchases our forgiveness. Third and final one I wanna show you is that the blood of Christ purchases our salvation. Look with me, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this to face judgment, so also Christ Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Death is not an accident. God appointed death to Adam and Eve because of their disobedience. Death is not an accident. Death is a verdict. Death is a divine judgment on our sin. The Bible teaches that our sin is, is deserving of death. Each of us in here, this, according to this verse, we will die once. You likely know someone who has died in your life. We are each appointed to die once. And the Bible says after that to face judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that not only were we appointed to die once and to face judgment, but there is a Savior who has come for us and just as we were appointed once to die, so has he been appointed once to die, once and for all for the sins of many. And though we had to die once for our sins, he died once, though he was sinless on our behalf. Jesus Christ knew about his appointment to death. Mark chapter 10, he tells his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him and they will kill him. And he will rise again after three days. Jesus Christ knew about his appointment to death, but he also knew he was appointed to rise again to defeat death in the grave for you and for me. Friends, listen, our faith demands that Jesus was appointed to die for us. Our faith demands it. Just as each one of us was appointed to die once, Christ died once and for all for our sins. We needed a perfect sacrifice. This was not outside of the will of God. God appointed this to happen. So the question for you is this, at your judgment, after you die once, will the blood of Christ cover your sins or will you trust in your own good works for salvation? Will you trust in the blood of, of Christ and what he has accomplished so that you can have assurance? 
you don't have to wait until you die to know if you're gonna be accepted into heaven. If you trust in Christ, his sacrifice is enough. Now the salvation is what Christ has accomplished at his first coming. Look at his second coming, verse 28. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all who are waiting for him. I've got a, a one-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I love coming home, and she's standing at our glass window. And when I come up the driveway, she is usually stared, uh, waiting at the glass door, banging on it and saying, da-da, da-da. And usually she gets co so close, it looks like she's like glued to the door. She's like so excited when I come in. So excited, in fact, that as I open the door, she's still like glued to it, and she won't let go. And I love that. I love that as a dad, seeing her anticipate when I'm coming home and the joy that she has. And that is how we wait for Christ. That is how we wait with anticipation for the day he comes. This is what the Israelites would do throughout the Old Testament on this day of atonement that is being pictured here. The high priest would, would come out and he would, he would sacrifice once. He would have this altar. He would make a sacrifice for their sin. But then he would have to go into the Holy of Holies again once a year. And as he would go into the Holy of Holies, all these people were waiting outside for him. They couldn't go in with him. And as they were waiting, as they were anticipating, they were thinking to themselves, will, will, will God accept this sacrifice? Will God cleanse us of our sins? Will we be able to have this covenant relationship with him again for this next year? And then when the high priest would come out, there would be joy, there would be celebration. Why? Because God has accepted this sacrifice on their behalf. And friends, this is a picture of Christ. Christ not only is the sacrifice, but he is the high priest. And he is coming again, not to bear your sin again, because he's done that once on the cross. But he's coming again as we wait with anticipation, because he brings us salvation. And this is good news. And here is the picture of us waiting, just like a dad to come home, or just like the high priest to come out. We wait with joy. We wait with anticipation. This is why we gather. This is why we gather to spur one another on to good works, because this is what we wait for. We're not coming here just to sing together, even though that's important. We're not coming here just to sit together. We're not coming here just to enjoy coffee together. All those things are important. We come here to anticipate Christ Jesus, because he is coming again. We'll sing in just a minute about the throne room. And friends, that is the picture. One day we will sing holy, holy, holy around the throne room. Not because anything that we have done, but because of the blood. Because of the blood of Christ. Christ is the hero that went into death to bring you life. He is the hero who, at the expense of his own life, gave salvation to everyone else. And if this is true, if it's true that Christ has bled for us, that he has sacrificed himself for us, then there's some implications for how you and I live. Let me give you three. If we believe that Christ Jesus has bled for us, number one, Christ's blood compels us to give generously. Christ's blood compels us to give generously. When Paul is, is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he begins this section on giving and finances, not with a call to remind the Corinthians of how much they have, but here's what he says. For your sake, Christ became poor. He begins by giving them a theology of the cross. 
And in order to exhort them to give financially, he reminds them of what Christ has given. We give generally not because the elders tell us to, or not because there is a giving campaign. We give because of Christ's shed blood on the cross. Christ did not give out of the extra that he had, but he gave until it cost. That is, he bled for us. Our giving should be sacrificial. If I can be honest with you for a moment, when when Catherine and I tithe at the beginning of each month, we have a, a prayer and we send in our tithe on realm. There's been a few times that we've thought to ourselves, man, we, we could use a little bit of that money. We could use a little bit of that for, for diapers or for clothes that we need or for food that we need. There are times that it hurts. Christ is not calling us to give out of the leftovers that we have, but he's calling us to give sacrificially. Abel did this, Genesis chapter four. Cain did not. Cain gave out of the leftovers of his harvest Abel gave, and it cost him, didn't it? It cost him to give. This is gonna require you to say no to some things in order to give to Christ. What will you say no to in order to, to give to him? Number two, Christ's blood also compels us to serve diligently. Because Christ has given us his life, we give him ours. This not only applies to our finances, but it applies to our time as well. What if instead of prioritizing your me time, what if you prioritize your best time to give to the Lord? Parents, what if you in here, what if you set the example for your family? And what if instead of prioritizing sports schedules, extracurricular, what if the kids in your home knew that the priority was the church and serving Christ? Singles in here. What if you lived your life in a 1 Corinthians 7 kind of way? where when you have a life unhindered by marriage or other responsibilities, you lived your life in a way that was sold out for the gospel. Not for school, not for extracurriculars, but for the gospel. Students, what if you gave up a few hours of your video games each week or your time on social media each day to serve the church? Christ came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Will your life be one of worship and service to him? And finally, number three, Christ's blood compels us to live missionally. Christ's blood compels us to live missionally. This message of the gospel was not one that God just decided to do one day. He did not wake up this morning and thought, think to himself, man, today would be a good day to send my son to die on the cross. This was a plan for all of eternity for you, for me. Again, this is the true story of the whole world. This is the best news in all the universe that God has sent his son, his sinless son, his one and only son to die in my place, to die in your place. And if this is true, then we have to live missionally. Christ's blood compels us to. He has given of himself and therefore we give our vocation, we give our time, we give our finances, we give our thoughts, we give our mind over to this mission. Has your God bled? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to consider this question as well. Because if this is true, if if the Bible is true, that God has bled for you, that Christ Jesus has been sent for, for you, for your sins, then that means that God is both personal and he is powerful. 
He is personal in that he has identified himself with you and he is powerful in that he can do something about it. He can, get, he can forgive your sins. He can grant you salvation through his blood. When we began this morning, I gave you several examples of some famous deaths, some famous sacrifices in franchises. If I could be honest, I think we all long for this. I think we all long for stories where the heroes win, where good triumphs over evil, where our favorite character escapes death. And again, the reason that these stories resonate with us is because this is the true story of the whole world. It points us to the gospel. There is a hero who has sacrificed himself. His name is Jesus. Again, Tolkien writes this famous essay. One of his friends was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series. Maybe you've read them or seen some of the movies. He depicts this so beautifully through Aslan, the lion. Aslan represents Christ. In book number six, it's the silver chair. And the silver chair centers on Eustace and Jill. Eustace is a cousin of the Pevensies who are central characters throughout. Eustace actually went to Narnia one time with Edmund and Lucy on the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've read these series, along with Prince Caspian. Well, in the silver chair, the setting is that Jill and Eustace, these schoolmates, they are sent to Narnia. Aslan gives them a mission. He tells them it's an adventure. They are to go find the long lost son of the king and to bring him back. The king is now King Caspian, who was a prince in some of the earlier novels. His wife and his young son were taken. The, wife actually, the, the witch in the land who was related to the white witch from some of the earlier novels, she actually killed Caspian's wife and she took his son. And the son has now been missing for several years. King Caspian does not know whether or not he is alive. Well, Aslan tells Eustace and Jill, hey, the son is alive and I need you to bring him back. I need you to bring him home so he can be with the king before King Caspian dies of old age. And so Jill and Eustace are sent on this adventure. They go to a land of giants. They even go underground and they, they have all these trials. They get into a final battle with the witch. The witch has, uh, has the uh, prince there and she has actually used the prince to take over some of the other lands. She's using him to come to Narnia. They defeat the witch, they break the silver chair, which has been used to uh, kind of mess with the prince's mind. So Prince Rillian is freed. And Jill and Eustace bring him back to Narnia to meet the king, to meet King Caspian. But as they get back, they realize that King Caspian is on his deathbed. And the king is laying there, wanting to meet his son, wanting to see his son one last time before he dies. And so they bring the prince up close. And as Prince Rillian gets close to his dad, King Caspian reaches up with his hand to bless his son, and then he dies right there. And Jill and Eustace in this story are, they're so sad. They're dumbfounded. Aslan, why would you let this happen? Why did we go on this adventure to bring the prince back, only for the king to die right there? Aslan takes Jill and Eustace and the dead body of King Caspian to what he calls the mountain of Aslan. And he takes him up there. He, he lays the body of the king in a stream. And this is the final scene from the book I want to read to you. As the king's body is laying there, as Jill and Eustace are there, this is what Aslan says to Eustace. Son of Adam, go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. And Eustace obeyed. The thorn was a foot long and was as sharp as a rapier. Drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan, 
holding up his right forepaw and spreading out his great pad towards Eustace. Must I, said Eustace. Yes, said Aslan. Then Eustace set his teeth and he drove the thorn into the lion's pad. And there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness you have ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. And the king began to be changed. Suddenly he leapt up and he stood before them, alive as he had never been before. Friends, we worship a God who has bled for us. And Lewis so beautifully depicts this throughout the Narnia series with Aslan because we worship a God who was not just pierced with a thorn, but who wore a crown of them upon his head as he was mocked, as he was beaten for us. And we worship a God who was not just pierced for a drop from his paw, but whose blood ran red on Calvary for you and I. And we worship a God who is not just pierced in one place, but with three nails, his hands and his feet were pierced on the cross for you and I. Jesus Christ has come once, sacrificing himself and shedding his blood to save the world, entering into death so that you and I could have life. And if you trust him, if you trust him, if you have faith in him, before he returns, you can have this life. You can have this inheritance. You can have this forgiveness. You can have this salvation. Has your God bled? Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. You have willingly given your life in exchange for ours. God, you have bled for us. A blood redder than anything we could ever imagine. You have sacrificed yourself on our behalf Father, help us to take hold of that inheritance now. Help us to forgive one another as you have forgiven us. Help us to wait with both patience and urgency as we give generously, as we serve diligently, as we live missionally, God. Father, your blood compels us to do these things. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. And Father, we look forward to the throne room. Father, we look forward to your return where one day we will worship the Lamb for all of eternity. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.